I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Hi again, it's Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu Marcus, and I'm with an old pal. Danny, you were just on. Danny Goldberg, everybody. And you, yes, hi. We did this thing earlier in the year. Yeah, we did a, a fun thing with uh, Sharon Salzberg, actually. Well, around. it was talking about the election, so it yeah. wasn't that much fun, but it was, it, was an, <laughs> it was an honor for me to be on a podcast with you and Sharon. That was for sure. Well, you know what? I haven't told you this off the show but we are compiling excerpts of of different conversations i've had yours with sharon is one of them when and other ram das and others of us lama surya das and so on joan halifax and we're going to put a little uh, we'll put a uh, a nice document together i don't know how what form it's going to take that is a bit about um we can't we're not going to call it this but a prescription for surviving the next, uh, well, we don't know the next. Oh, you weren't going to call it greatest hits? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of the Kali Yuga. Our friend did that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but uh, Danny has a wonderful new book, and we want everybody to know about it. It's called In Search of the Lost Chord. And it's all about 67, 1967, the whole hippie idea. And uh, and I have to say one thing to you. Again, I didn't mention this to you off off, off uh, the show. Um, there's like one classic example. So many people in this book, which is so well researched, Danny, it's amazing. Um, many people would like to flog those hippies and the concepts <laughs> that they represented. Uh, many people in the book, and of course, you know, all the from the SDS people to the diggers to all everybody, the the people who were taking action against the war and so on. But there's one little little tiny passage in this book about somebody who they were railing out against, and who is it? Me. You know, I read the book, and then I 
Oh, my God. I'm like the Cheech and Chong of your book, me and my oh. friend, okay? <laughs> no, no, it's it's a rainbow. Every We each had our own color in the rainbow. <laughs> well, you I know, got... without, without, without your being, I describe... Um, there was a there was a march in Oakland to, to Berkeley, supposedly Berkeley. shut down the draft bar, board. I guess it's Berkeley and yeah, Oakland, yeah. Uh, you know, adjacent to each other, and and um, and uh, it was uh, different people um, decided that uh, that um, a more militant approach was needed. So uh, so some of the radicals suggested that we we push cars, take the brakes off of cars, any car with an open door and push the wall into the intersections, that would like just shut down the draft board mm. and, you know, be this huge upgrade in protest compared to mere peaceful protest. And of course, it just means that the police took another couple hours to clear all the cars out of the way. And obviously the board, the draft board didn't uh, shut down and the draft at that time did not end nor did the war, but it was, it was, it was an effort. People were trying different things. I, by coincidence, happened to have just gotten to Berkeley uh, during my very brief stay there and and remember it. And I was talking to Ragu on the phone one day and he told me that by coincidence, he was at that very same thing, even though we didn't know each other then. And do you want to tell yeah. your version of it? Yeah, because, uh, well, no, it's pretty spot on, but it's em embarrassing. So I'm driving down the street in Berkeley and of course they had tear gas uh, going on they were tear gassing the protesters and so on. And that the wind wafted it towards us. But we had no idea of what was going on. Yes, we were true blue hippies. We were, we were of course, against the war in Vietnam. But we, we weren't out there marching, to say the very least. Uh, what we were doing, because I came from Montreal, is getting draft dodgers over the border and uh, you know, uh, taking them in. So that that was our only contribution, uh, which was an extremely significant contribution. Uh, was Jesse Winchester one of those? He was. Jesse was uh, the most famous of those. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we lived together. Uh, so anyhow, driving down the street, open my my friend's driving. He opens the window, and suddenly we're like, "Wow!" And this is straight out of Cheech and Chong. Are you getting stone mad? <laughs> and it was tear gas because the, the the cops to break up the rally. You know, I I just think that what was interesting about that moment and why I wanted to write the book about '67 and not about later in the '60s, when anger and protest were so much uh, uh, more a proportion of whatever the counterculture was. That '67 was this balance between an inner and the outer, between an inner quest, which for a lot of people started with psychedelics. Certainly for me, it started that way, and um, and the outer of recognizing this war going on that a lot of us felt was completely wrong and therefore immoral, and uh, it was also coinciding with a, a, an intense development in the civil rights movement as the words "black power" became the watchword and the worst urban disturbances and since the Civil War. And it was the same year that LSD was le illegal everywhere. So so suddenly it was available everywhere. What always happens with prohibition. And it was the same year that the Beatles met the Maharishi and suddenly the word meditation is on the cover of tabloids. And it's a word that's out we're using, even though we're not going to theology school or something. Uh, and uh, I like that balance of different things that included from you 
to me, to, to, to the hardcore protesters, all coexisting. Uh, that's why I call it the lost core. There was a particular balance that was dissipated rather quickly, but that I remained entranced with. Mm. I, I want to talk about psychedelics because obviously that's a thread throughout the book. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about it. And it's such, it has such impact to this moment where uh, people are in the same way. I like to think there's some comparisons. We've talked about this before between that year and, and, and in, in and around that year and what's going on now to some degree with the next generation coming up. And uh, there certainly are some parallels uh, yeah. that uh, there's no doubt about. Uh, I, I, I love this new, this millennial generation anyway. Both of my kids are in it and then they voted so much for Bernie Sanders. I mean, those are two very good things about this generation to start with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there's one thing here that, I, uh, if you don't mind, I just want to read Thank a little you. something. Um, and it's a quote from you, uh, from Octo Octavio Paz, who I never heard of, actually. Um, and he, and it's, uh, we, he says, We are now in a position to understand the real reason for the condemnation of hallucinogens and why their use is punished. The authorities do not behave as though they were trying to stamp out a harmful practice or a vice, but as though they were attempting to stamp out dissidents. Since this is a form of dissidence that is becoming more widespread, the prohibition takes on the proportions of a campaign against a spiritual contagion. I love that so much, spiritual contagion. Yeah, against yeah. an opinion. Yeah, yeah. What the authorities are displaying is ideological zeal. They are punishing a heresy, not a crime. That's really well said uh, about that reality, no? That's why I quoted him. I couldn't say it that well. Uh, and it's very consistent with what I've heard Ram Dass say in some of his remembrances of the, of the criminalization and the demonization. I mean... Um, it sounds like incredible to say it, but President Nixon uh, referred to Timothy Leary as the most dangerous yeah. man in America. I mean, Tim Leary, uh, not perfect. Uh, I loved him, but he was certainly not perfect. And his any life story of his will show you some of his imperfections. But I don't remember him ever having heard a fly. I mean, he, he, he certainly was nonviolent and he was uh, sincere. And uh, certainly he he was no more imperfect than Nixon was. But um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll give him but, way more. But but, you know, I I looked at the hippies, you know, when I was selling the book, one of the publishers that didn't want it says to me, well, what you know, books have to be in a section in a bookstore. What what section would this be? in? you're not a historian, so it wouldn't be history. So I said uh, it would be in the religious section. Because, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to get a deal with this annoying attitude. So I just went for what I really, you know, and I, because to me, the hippie phenomenon, and this is the, the word became drained of meaning so soon and became a Cheech and Chong cartoon. But there was a brief moment when, when, as I say, peace and love were not meant ironically. There was, there was a collective attempt at, 
at trying to at trying to shine some light or some let some light shine through us. And no, it didn't completely fix the world. Neither did the life of Jesus Christ. Neither did the Enlightenment. Neither did breakthroughs in technology. You know, that seems to be the human condition. But uh, there was some light shown, in my opinion, yeah. and um, and part of it was. Uh, uh, spiritual, whether it was people that that identified like we ended up doing with Eastern religions and traditions, or whether it's people who just had sort of a different philosophical view of what it meant to be a good person. Uh, and uh, it wasn't so much a rebellion against um, Orthodox Christianity and Judaism, in my opinion, although there was some of that. There were some people that came out of repressive elements of of some of those religions, sometimes with sexual repression and uh, or narrowness. Um, but a lot of it, the main religion to me of America then as now is is rational materialism is is mm. uh, is a belief in the bottom line and a belief in the gross national product and a belief in the free market and a belief that the that you should really only trust and plan your life around things that you can measure and experience with your five senses. It's 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 a it's an opinion shared by many people. It's the dominant philosophy with a lot of this Western society. And um, like all philosophies, there's some truth to it. But it, to me, it leaves a lot out. And for people who grew up, you know, drenched in that sort of you know advertisements for Cadillacs with big tail fins as the symbol of success and accomplishment, um, the idea of looking inward. And and uh, instead of only externally was 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 a huge relief, and and the idea that you weren't the only one doing it, and that there was this kind of overnight millions of people sharing that notion was a spiritual moment. It didn't become a religion by design. I think there was an ethos that like didn't want leadership and didn't want hierarchy, but it left a residue that that I think is a, is a positive one. Uh, but boy, a lot was going on in a very short amount of time. Yeah, say the least. There's one. You know what my favorite part of the book is, though. It's this. But anyway, that I'm sorry because I really ignored your question, and I want to answer it. So why was it treated as a heresy? Because uh -huh. it really was challenging the philosophy that was the underpinning of of big business and big politics. Yeah. You know, right. self interest as as the ethos. And it also was a tremendous frontal assault on organized religion, because the idea of organized religion, and I'm paraphrasing Ramdas here, is, you know, you would go, you wouldn't have a direct experience with God. You were believing that the priest or rabbi knew more about God than you did and was trying to connect you, whereas whereas the, uh, the hippie idea was directly to try to mm -hmm. connect with God. And we may not have gotten enlightenment in, in the pure sense, but there was a flash of awareness for a lot of people that there was an alternative way of looking at being alive. And that was directly perceived as a threat by, by a lot of the established order. And they reacted with a venom and a hatred that was completely insane, given the fact that it was a completely nonviolent movement. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to say, uh, what I was trying to say before is, my favorite section in this book uh, is is the uh, what did you call it? It's well, it's the the houseboat summit. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. And that everybody was with Alan Watts, Tim Leary, Alan Ginsberg, and Gary Snyder. And you know what a quartet that is. And it, and it was all so it was 
It was uh, recorded uh, by Alan Cohn, who started the Oracle, I believe. Yeah, and, yeah, he was he was the editor of the Oracle, which was the psychedelic uh, paper magazine of the Haight Ashbury during its peak. So, did you get that transcript? You know, it I, I it was transcribed in its entirety and published in the Oracle, and I uh, I, I I have uh, the uh, facsimile edition of all of the Oracles. And and I and I had to get a magnifying glass because oh, really? the way they printed things was in small type <laughs> and very squirrely. And then I discovered online there was an audio recording of it that I actually could then listen to. Wow. Uh, and I don't know if the audio recording was all of it, but it was definitely most of it. So there were nuances I could get out of listening to the audio recording. I mean, you said that I researched it a lot, and it's true. I just became obsessed. And, you know, boy, and there are good and bad things to me about this uh, uh, digital era that we're in. But one of the great things is the ability to find stuff. I mean, the the uh, there was uh, uh, films uh, of the B-in, you know, uh, there were there were audio recordings of uh, so much of what I what I was able to to, to to write about and document when there's quotes from people like Ginsburg or others is um is based on stuff that I could just find online, you know, and, and once you look for it, once you know what you're looking for, uh, you know, I was able to do it. But that houseboat summit was in April of 67, I think either March or April. And, and the BN had been in January. And uh, as a result of the BN, there was this explosion of uh, publicity about Haight-Ashbury because 30,000 people came to the park when there'd never been more than a few thousand at one of these gatherings in, at the BN. And uh, there was this sense of uh, enormous uh, uh, energy going towards Haight-Ashbury, uh, like a wave about to crash on the shore based on the media and the fact that the summer was coming up and the media was already coining it, you know, the summer of love. And in fact, the summer of love is what killed Kate Ashbury <clears throat> because just too many people came and there was no infrastructure to do it, to, to, to cover it. And the media uh, allowed a lot of uh, corrupt uh, people to masquerade as hippies. I mean, it didn't allow people to do it and encourage them. It rewarded it. So, but before that happened, these guys knew that something weird intense was happening, that they were somehow in the middle of it. And so they decided to have this conversation about where do we, how do we make this new society? And to me, it's kind of like this last innocent moment when these geniuses who were part of an energy far greater than any of them uh, were trying to see what, what, what the new world they dreamt of could, could be like. And uh, I particularly love an exchange between Tim Leary and Allen Ginsberg. Um, if, if I could tell it. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, where, where Tim at the BN had, had, uh, popularized the phrase, um, turn on, tune in, drop out. And, um, I think he'd used it before that, but this was where it really became famous and it became the phrase that he would be known for, for the rest of his life, uh, for better, or for worse. And Ginsburg is berating him for it because he's saying that the kids that he's talking to don't know what Tim is talking about. Mm -hmm. Drop out of what? Drop out to where? You know, and uh, and Tim is incredibly defensive and sort of contemptuous of the political people in Berkeley because Alan bridged the gap between protest and psychedelia better than anyone. 
And then at the end of it, Alan brings it up one more time and you just feel Tim just melt because you feel how much he loved and respected Ginsburg. And he just says, Alan, you know, I make a lot of blunders. Like at least half of what I say is wrong. <laughs> so maybe that's a mistake. Maybe we should say, turn on, tune in, drop in. I'll try that, you know? <laughs> and uh, that's the sweet side of Leary that mm. uh, some of the biographies don't, yeah. don't capture. Uh, we were talking, Danny, before about the advent of psychedelics and what it meant. We were talking about how the government treated it. And uh, I would say in in this uh, get-together on the boat with these guys, uh, Alan Watts said the most absolutely insightful and spectacular thing about uh, about... To me, it's about... What all of that, uh, the hippie credo represents ultimately and, and where a revolution was started in this way. And let me just read this. Alan Watts went on to suggest that Western man had lost touch with original intelligence through centuries of relying solely on analytic thinking. Now with psychedelics and meditation, some were reconnecting with original intelligence, suggesting an entirely new course for the development of civilization. And, and I, uh, I believe that's what was passed on uh, more than anything else. Uh, certainly a lot of things were passed on. I mean, I, people that poo-poo the, the era, the era and, or who put down, you know, the hippie, quote, credo and... Uh, they were just people who went inside and they didn't pay any attention to what was going on around them and they were one-dimensional, which in a lot of ways was true, that aspect. But I think the, uh, the aspect of opening up this world, uh, that psychedelics and the combination of psychedelics and Eastern uh, uh, spirituality, which you cover later in the book as well, um, reconnecting with original intelligence. I mean... I, I really do believe that's going to pay some dividends, especially in the age that we're in right now. Yeah, well, one certainly hopes. Again, all of these, um, uh, I mean, one of the, I'm trying to experience in reliving the year the good and the bad of it. And I came out strongly on the side of the good of it, uh, as you can feel and as I think you do. But but there were some some mistakes. And one of the mistakes, I think, was an impatience that there was this feeling that uh, everything was going to be fixed in the next few mm, years, things yeah. that had taken thousands of years to develop. It took, you know, oh, my goodness, 100 years between the end of slavery and desegregation, for for goodness sake, not to mention how long it took women to get the right to vote or any kind of religious freedom, any kind of freedom of speech, hundreds and hundreds of years of human development, uh, you know, uh, any kind of uh, restrictions in working conditions. So th this idea that everything was going to happen very quickly um, created some um, unrealistic, delusional um, conversations. But at the same time, the intent was very, very pure and beautiful. And I think the people that I admire the most from the era are the, some of the people I de dedicate the book to, Ram Dass, uh, Paul Krasner, and Wavy Gravy. And I also think, to me, Allen Ginsberg and Martin Luther King are the two real heroes of the book. 
Uh, and those five people all balance the inner path and the outer path, the path of trying to understand the existence of, of, of the soul in a broader sense than just, you know, materialism. And at the same time, honoring the fact that that material world exists and that there's such a thing as compassion, ethics and morality and to and, to, and, that, and that you can't really have one without the other. And um, and I I uh, I think that's the ideal. There were a lot of people who, uh, uh, you know, were just completely selfish. Uh, there were people on the, on the who had good political ideas, but who were untransformed. Dr. King called them untransformed nonconformists, whose anger uh, did more harm than good. Uh, there were people that were just there because it was fashionable and only into the superficial symbols. And, uh, you know, there's no question that the media and the way that people dumbed it down created kind of a cartoon version of it that if I were born 15 years later, I would have contempt for as well. Uh, I understand the punks and the younger people who were turned off by the cartoon version of it. But there was a, a realness before the cartoon that for many of us uh, still still motivates us a lot. I think a lot of the people involved with uh, with the Be Here Now Network would fall into that category. Yeah, and and not only that, but contributed extraordinarily to the development of who we are as people from that era to now and the different things, you know, we've been involved in, in, in over that time span. Um, there is one thing just that actually uh, takes place uh, in the book just as part of the... Uh, this uh, session on the houseboat. Um, and it's about the diggers. The diggers mm. say, you know, th uh, that uh, w they were talking about how people, thousands of people coming to the city, as you described, and they don't know, you know, what's going on. And there's no infrastructure, no elders having solutions, none of that. So uh, in this passage, uh, an audience member asked, I guess, a, a digger, don't tribes learn to mistrust each other? In retrospect, you say this was an extremely important question. In the moment on the houseboats, houseboat, the elders seem stumped. Um, if we, uh, that's a, a huge question now. I mean, it always yes. has been, but of course yes. we're in the middle of it. Yeah, talk about the uh, tribe. Well, you know, um, I try to to think about uh, why why there's still so much polarization. Mm -hmm. uh, wh uh, as much as I honor what was accomplished, uh, you know, you'd have to be blind and deaf not to recognize what has not been accomplished, and the continued suffering in the world and some of the cruelty and the and the imbalance. You know how people could be starving and still have warehouses of rotting food, and people are unemployed, and you have bridges that need repairing, and you know where are the systems to connect these things, and um, and the the um, one thing that I think that that was in retrospect counterproductive was the negativity of people who weren't in one of our cool tribes. I remember when I was a kid, you know, we used to divide people up between straights and heads. You know, in those days, straight didn't have a sexual connotation, at least in my circles, but a, a meaning not a non-druggy. And I looked down on straights. Heads were, you know, we had this secret among ourselves and everybody else was <laughs> left out of it. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. But you know what? People don't like being left out. And people don't like being laughed at or made fun of or feeling uncool. And, you know, to define something as a counterculture immediately creates a polarity and a lack of 
of um, of compassion and respect for people that are in the non-counterculture. And uh, the polarization had reasons. The war in Vietnam was horrible. There were forces in the government that were horrible. There were irrational policies. Uh, it was not a good time in many ways. Uh, you know, I mean, 56,000 Americans died in Vietnam. That's 10 times more than the number of people who died on 9-11, not to mention millions of Vietnamese. And the, uh, the, the racial disturbances were far worse in terms of deaths and injuries and destruction than anything that we've seen since or anything really for the decades prior to it. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was, uh, t you know, just an awful... Uh, head of the FBI, he he spied on Dr. King. He blackmailed people. He he was uh, you know uh, he, the, one of the darkest authoritarians ever to hold power in the country. And worse than as screwed up as some of our agencies are now, I don't I don't see anybody as bad as J. Edgar Hoover. So, and of course the assassinations, uh, you know, were were just devastating. You know, uh, how to recover from the loss of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. The same the same year. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, th there's a lot of um, things to be against. But still, if you really want to change the world and you have a philosophy that believes that the spirit is everywhere, then it's got to also, as Ramda says, be in Republicans, be in people that disagree with you. It, you've got to have a vision that at least honors and respects people, whether they like you or they don't like you. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the polarity and the clannishness, the tribalism, uh, which, which was fun for a lot of us, because a lot of people that were hippies, like I didn't have any friends at all before I started smoking pot, you know? <laughs> I, then I was suddenly part of this whole world of, you'd walk down the street and connect with somebody and it was your brother, you know? But, uh, to exclude so many people, to dehumanize people for being straight, uh, you know, that was just uh, counterproductive to either political or spiritual goals and something not to do again. Mm. I want to mention something else. I mean, I, I, I started out uh, the podcast with the fact that I was the uh, poster boy for Cheech and Chong, you know, that story. So uh, there's another thing. So all through the book, though, uh, historically, there's all sorts of, uh, the, of information that is, is kind of like a, it's like an acid trip for me, a flashback. Okay, acid, it, you know, just things that you, that you uh, describe and historical events and so on. I go, oh, God, yeah, I was the, somewhere, you know, or I was there then. I knew what was going on at that moment. You know, it's that, it's that clear. Uh, so here's one of them. The Fugs. Okay, yeah. if anybody out there does not know who the Fugs were, okay, Danny, just just describe the Fugs, Ed Sanders and yeah. Joe Perubu. Well, the, the Fugs, um, the name the Fugs was a was a rock group that put out a few records starting in the late sixties. And uh, it was consisted of people that weren't really rock musicians prior to it. The leading figure being Ed Sanders, uh, who is a poet, uh, a beatnik. He was probably 10 or 15 years older than the, the hippies, more, you know, some a little younger than Ginsburg, in between the hippie and beatnik generation, saw himself uh, very much identified with the beats, also was a pacifist and was involved with, uh, you know, pacifist activities before Vietnam. And... Um, uh, you know, was a real uh, Lower East Side um, 
cutting edge kind of uh, radical rebellious intellectual post beatnik and created a, a periodical called fuck you a magazine of the arts yeah and and he opened up a bookstore called the peace eye bookstore which was on lower east side i think it was on avenue a that was a that was the uh, kind of an outpost of the hate ashbury energy in new york you know it's it's it was it was one of the first visible places that was clearly part of the same mindset even though it had a new york twist to it it was a little more intellectual a little more literary uh, but definitely into psychedelics. And uh, he put this together, this band called The Fugs, and they made a few records on indie labels. They never had big commercial success, but they were a real, you know, everybody I knew had a Fugs record. And they had songs like uh, Slum Goddess of the Lower East Side. And then he would take a William Blake poem and set it to music. And then he would have a song like um, I Feel Like Homemade Shit <laughs> or... <laughs> You know, <laughs> you know, or a song yeah. called Nothing, the lyrics of where and Thule Kufferberg, who was an older beatnik um, character in New York, was the other prominent member of the Fugs. And they were, you know, very interesting people. Uh, Ed is still alive and lives in Woodstock. Thule passed away uh, in his early 90s a year or two ago. Um, and Ed wrote a tremendously good book called uh, I think it's called Fug You, uh, uh, but uh, it's his his memoir. That I that I drew heavily on, but I remember seeing the Fugs. They were at almost every benefit. Every you couldn't go to a counterculture event in New York that the Fugs weren't somehow in the middle of. Okay, well, picture me. I'm in Montreal. I've just really started doing acid in '67, right? Just because I had been abroad in Africa, or whatever, traveling before Israel, all doing that stuff, and we're a little behind us Canadians in terms of. And pop culture. So, uh, anyhow, so I've started doing psychedelics. One day, somebody came along and said, I have the most pure Czechoslovakian acid. It is, I mean, it's really great. And we were all excited. There's, you know, four, five, six of us in, in this apartment. And uh, for some reason, I decided I'll take two. That amounted. That's a, that's a bad thing. Never, never do. Yeah. I'll take two. Everybody out there, of course, we're not yeah. advocating any of this, <laughs> but yes. I did, and I died. I mean, it was the most powerful uh, trip that I probably ever ever took, and uh, I was completely fine with it up to one point, and that point was, oh shit, nobody, no sex. That was it. Bang. I went off into an alternative reality on that one. So, uh, and, th and the other thing is, you know, when you go to your friend is, and say, and everybody's stoned on acid, you go, everything okay? And he turns and goes, I don't know. <laughs> the wrong answer, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm completely flipped out at this point. And they decide, okay, let's go out. Uh, we heard this group called the Fugs is playing at a local... Uh, you know, nightclub. So, okay, I'm in this really whacked out condition. We go in through, the, open the door. There's the Fugs in the middle of, you know, one song with Ed Sanders uh, doing fellatio on the microphone, right? Which, yeah. <laughs> and they, they were so gross. I mean, they were so much more sexual and kind of dirty than anybody that came before. Yeah. They straightened me out right away. I came down so fast. <laughs> <that> <laughs> I, was, yeah, I was cool. 
Oh boy, oh boy. Oh. Um, well, he's a character. I mean, Ed Sanders was the one who um, read when you know that the March on Washington at the end of the year, where where the yippies decided they were going to exorcise the Pentagon and then levitate it. <laughs> you know, they broke off from the old line pacifist beatniks and did this. And Norman Mailer described it in great detail in his book, The Armies of the Night, which, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, one of the best books about the 60s. And Ed Sanders was the one who read the uh, exorcism. You know, he was the absolute epicenter of exorcising the Pentagon. So quite a character. Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, a, a, there's a, there's a lovely little thing. These are just little things I loved in the book. So, you know, sharing what I love, which is what I normally do on Mind Ruling. And by the way, everybody, the book is coming out June 6th, Danny? Yes, June 6th. Okay. Uh, there's a British version coming out in the United Kingdom July 5th, I, I, uh, but uh, in the United States and Canada, June 6th. Okay, so everybody, please... Use the BeHereNowNetwork.com. Go to the portal where we have Amazon on the menu and use Amazon, please, to buy the book. That'll help. It helps Danny and it helps the network and the foundation. So it's all a good thing. You've, there's this little piece with uh, uh, Ramdas, who then was Alpert, Richard Alpert, and Dr. Humphrey Osman, who was a, a pioneer LSD researcher. I remember him, living uh, his name, living in Saskatchewan. Arguing the merits of LSD against uh, against psychiatrist Adam Rosenblatt and University of Toronto philosopher philosopher Charles Hanley, who called it I love this an opiate for the mentally lame, intellectually halt, and morally blind comments that <laughs> were not well received by the audience, which I imagine. <laughs> so so Ramdas or Richard Alpert concluded, if I have to wind up. Psych- if I have to wind up psychotic to break the status quo and get to a meaningful future, I'm ready. And boy, he lived those words out, right? Our, our leader, God bless him. <laughs> you know. By the way, Humphrey Osmond is the person who coined the word psychedelic. Really? Yes. That's according to my research. He, wow. He, he dreamt up that word. Oh, that's tremendous. I didn't know that. Uh, he was from Saskatchewan, right? Yeah, yeah. So did you ever was, get to Saskatchewan? Yeah, not in your life would I go anywhere near. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. It's supposed to be beautiful. I just can't take the cold. That's all there is yeah. to it. You know? um, uh, by the way, uh, I just want to mention something. Uh, and You know, the, in the podcasts that uh, we've done together, and there have been you know several of them over the last couple of years, uh, I don't think there's one in which uh, Martin Luther King hasn't uh, had a, a, a prominent voice, uh, usually from uh, Danny's uh, perspective. And uh, I just, there's, I got to read this one thing because it's really lovely. Uh, it's, uh, it's so passionate, and, but so, so much presence, so much equilibrium, you know? Um, in a speech, he said, I'm sick and tired of violence. I'm tired of the war in Vietnam. I'm tired of war and conflict in the world. I'm tired of shooting. I'm tired of hatred. I'm tired of selfishness. I'm tired of evil. I'm not going to use violence no matter who says it. I mean, 
Yeah, he's, uh, you know, one of one of the to me, he's like reading about him is almost like reading about a holy, you know, holy man like Ramakrishna or 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 other people that walk the earth that just shown so much light. And he was an American, you know, and and he he existed in our lifetime. I never met him, but I saw him on TV. I I was alive at the same time he was for the first, you know, 17 and a half years of my life. And and uh, he's well documented. And uh, it's hard to um, remember unless you really go back and look at what was going on in that last year of his life, how much criticism he was getting from so many different quarters. There was the black power movement and the people that were inspired by Malcolm X who were very, very critical and contemptuous of the idea of nonviolence. There was um, the liberal democratic establishment that was furious that he had opposed the war in Vietnam after Lyndon Johnson had pushed through the civil rights legislation. And that opinion was shared by the elite media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the establishment civil rights organization. So not only did the black radicals that reject him, so did the moderates, uh, who's, who, uh, like the NAACP, voted 60 to zero in their board to condemn Dr. King's uh, opposition to the war. And, um, and then he still had, um, you know, the right wing uh, racists hating him uh, and the paranoid uh, FBI hating him. And uh, it's incredible how he's, he knew what he believed. And he was literally, in my mind, a, a saint who who never, never went away from his core beliefs, whether he was uh, no matter who uh, disagreed with him about it. And um you know, uh, he also was such a mystic. I mean, I I didn't go there as much. I would have quoted more of him, but you know, there's limits on how much you can quote without getting you know written permission and yeah, yeah. paying for it. I mean, I I can't get enough of Dr. King, and you know, there's a lot online, and some of my favorite things are some of his sermons where he would just talk about it from a purely spiritual point of view. But um, yeah, he's uh, we you know we haven't seen anyone like him lately. No. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. And in the book, too, Allen Ginsberg is a shining light. And uh, he said, the best experience I have had, in, in this is in response to Stokely Carmichael's depiction of hippies in a very negative fashion. The best experience I have had has been with the younger people in America and some few of my own generation who have had to confront the mass hallucination or style of consciousness or mode of consciousness into which we were born and had some kind of mental breakthrough, which clarified not only the nature of our own identity, but also the nature of others' identities as being the same as our own. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's another thing I feel that did uh, come across these decades, that idea. Well, and Alan lived... Uh you know, till uh, around 96, well into the second half of the 90s, I was lucky enough to get to know him the last few years of his life. And, you know, the last recording, he loved music he made was when we were both at Mercury, at Ragu. I don't know if you remember Ballad of the Skeletons. Yeah, and no, absolutely. The, the B side of it was he rewrote the lyrics of Amazing Grace um, from the point of view of being in a homeless shelter. Uh, and... Um, 
you know, he was uh, he was the real deal. He, he spanned so many eras. First of all, of the beatniks, uh, you know, he's what like Jack Kerouac hated the hippie movement and looked down on it and made fun of it. I mean, Alan, what instead of being threatened by it, embraced, embraced it. it. Yep. You know, instead of being threatened when people said Bob Dylan is a poet, Alan said he's he's not just a poet. He's a great poet, you know. Uh, and, uh, and he, um, he continued to evolve, uh, and be alive and live in the moment till his, he drew his last breath and was socially conscious, was very helpful to people, was generous, uh, took, uh, principled political stands. And at the same time was a, a deeply spiritual being, uh, I believe that he ended up identifying more with, with Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But he honored, I mean, the Hare Krishna chant was popularized by Allen Ginsberg. It was the fact that he went to the park and chanted with Bhaktivedanta is why the New York Times wrote about it and how that became famous. And all of the things that happened was, and Allen then in San Francisco and Bhaktivedanta comes to Los Angeles, uh, to San Francisco, meets him at the airport and and uh, you know, puts together a benefit concert with the with the Grateful Dead and the Big Brother to pay for a Hare Krishna temple in 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 Haight Ashbury. But I think I think ultimately he was the Buddhist way was his way. Yeah. And boy, what a if you know makes you want to become a Buddhist. If that if that's if that's what you end up. He like. was a real bhakti Buddhist, though he really was. I mean, he yeah, as you exactly. said, he brought the Hare Krishna. There's nothing more bhakti than that. And uh, and just in my own encounters, the first time I really met him was with Trungpa Rinpoche in Boston with Ram Dass. And, I mean, the man was, you know who he reminded me of, really? Leonard Cohn, just the total mensch gentleman. Yeah. And a gentle man as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Um, there's something else in the book, uh, a couple more things before we... Uh, get off this uh, podcast. Um, Robert Kennedy. I mean, mm. so I know all the history and so on, but I didn't have the kind of feel that I got uh, from this speech that you quoted that he made uh, in Kansas uh, very early 1968. Um, even if we act to erase material poverty there is another greater task it's to confront the poverty of sa satisfaction purpose and dignity that afflicts us all he could be writing this today too much and for too long we seem to have surrounded personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things our gross national product is over $800 billion a year, but that gross national product, if we judge the, state, the United States by that, that gross national product counts air pollution, cigarettes, ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy 
of their play. And it goes on from there. I won't read it. It's it's a little long. Um, that's fantastic. As yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, again, I participate in elections. I make choices. I, I uh, believe I'm a Democrat, you know, when it comes to elections so far in my life. But uh, I haven't heard anybody in either party or the third parties speak from that place, uh, mm. you know, uh, who had national prominence. And, you know, that's, I think, why he was able to put a weird coalition together. There were said to be many people that were for George Wallace uh, after Robert Kennedy uh, got shot, that, 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 that those were the two that they felt had compassion for them. And it's amazing, a guy from such a wealthy, privileged background, but he'd seen tragedy the way Franklin Roosevelt had experienced tragedy when he had polio. And Robert Kennedy's tragedy of the murder of his brother uh, opened up something in him, according to all accounts. And he he was an unusual to be a mass celebrity potential president and to be in touch with that kind of inner yeah. inner flow, uh, you know, is why we miss him so much. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, the book concludes. Uh, it actually it could conclude with um, a Springsteen song. You, if you if it was a, a, your audio book should have had this song. It's hard to be a saint in the city. You know, the last few pages where you talk about embracing the idea of agape and loving compassion and uh, that it's a, it's a difficult thing to do, even for saints. Uh, but that's, that is our a reason to be here. I mean, I, I completely believe that, and I know you do too. And... Uh, and you will quote, I mean, Dr. King again, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Um, so, uh, uh, oh, and there's, oh, there's one little thing here. I'm glad I caught this, Danny. Um, this thing about, uh, you talked about acid. Um, the, uh, the, the little story of Ramdas giving Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji acid. Okay, and then his comments on it, which were, it allows you to spend a couple of hours with Christ, and he, that's what he said, but then you have to come back down and do the spiritual work to actually live in that consciousness. His words for do the spiritual work to actually live in that consciousness, you know what that was? Feed people. That's mm. what he actually said. Better, mm. you're better feed people. Mm. You know, mm. and... um I I just I just think that um, people who who just put down and we've talked about this throughout this podcast put down the quote unquote hippie idealism and there are many ways in which uh, all of us would agree that there was certainly some real fall down in terms of uh, how uh, how people thought it was going to be one thing and it and it turned into something not so great a couple of years later uh how uh w they weren't being responsible for their lives that was a big one you know these people are completely irresponsible uh but i think that uh the fact that we learned and i go back to that quote from earlier in the book um uh from alan watts that we were reconnecting with original intelligence i think 
that awareness that has been carried through, uh, certainly me and a lot of people I know from that time, is super important, and I'm I'm hoping will will really uh, help us in two ways. One, uh, to really um, connect with this next generation and be of some service to them from our own experience. Uh, you know, I I would hope to, uh, hope that that that's true, and um, and the other is to um, do as much as possible for us individually to live those words. Love, I mean, for us, that's what we got from Neem Karoli Baba Maharaj. Love everyone. I mean, Ram Dass talks about this all the time. I mean, love everyone, tell the truth, serve people, and so on. Uh, this, as you say, this is the gig. There isn't any other gig. And to do that gig... Uh, is uh, one thing certainly I'm pontificating now. I don't know how I got into this, but I mean it mm. sounds right. But that we actually can have look inside. We are not afraid to look inside, and that's that kind of truth. I think is really important, and and we're not afraid to share. W w you know what what this uh, what Martin Luther King shared in his whole life by his life. Well, I, I thank you so much for articulating it that way. And and I would just say there's another stream of thought that I would love to add to it, because I was at Tom Hayden's memorial service a few months ago. Uh, he was, he's certainly, to me, the most brilliant of the radicals and also someone I, I became friends with. Did a podcast on, on my podcast with him that mm. I'm just a few months before he died. And um, so a guy, a longtime radical uh, and progressive of tremendous accomplishment came up to me and said, you know, I'm doing an interview with, for my son's high school paper about why we failed. And uh, this was uh, after the Trump election. And, and Tom's death, obviously, was a time of reflection for a lot of people about the ideals they had politically in the 60s when he was such a thought leader and, uh, and subsequently also someone who stayed engaged till the last day of his life. Um, and um, I hear this a lot from people of my age, and I think it has to do with being in your 50s, 60s, or 70s, and knowing that there's more, more years behind you than ahead of you, and there's a limited amount that's going to get accomplished, uh, and that the kind of uh, utopian dreams that maybe we felt uh, in our early 20s are not going to physically happen during this incarnation. And, uh, you know, I really feel that that's not a, a, a complete truth, because the truth is it never was rational to expect the entire world was going to become perfect in one lifetime, when that's not been the story of the human race. The story of the human race, though, to me, is to, is to shine light where you can and to honor that. And the same way you have to have compassion for other people, you've got to have compassion and respect for yourself. And I feel this generation that we're both part of uh, should not be beating ourselves up. I feel that we should learn from our mistakes. And I could list a bunch of personal ones I've made and collective ones that our generation made, you know, certainly uh, deciding that heroin and meth were in the same category as psychedelics was uh, an early mistake. And so is a lot of the tremendous infighting among people that thought their version of truth was so superior to some other commune or some other belief system that that we fragmented. But but I'm really proud to have been part of this community. I think the community has left a lot more light than darkness. And I think as people grow older, 
they should feel some honor that part of themselves let what whatever light is left in them shine the way wavy gravy does the way ramdas does the way the real role models have and um i'm very upset about the amount of suffering in the world and i and global warming and i wish somehow i had done more to to make things better but i think collectively people should honor what they've accomplished the same way a doctor if a doctor felt that uh, they had to keep patients alive forever then they would have to quit that's not their job their job is to serve them and so that they have the best the best health and i think that's so so i was really trying to to frankly put a little purple light around that period so that we could all feel good about it yeah absolutely anybody out there all y'all listening who really want to get details about uh, how what took place in 1967 and how the hippie idea was formulated and uh, and how uh, the antecedents of of which we can we are part of today. There's no doubt about that. Uh, in search of the lost chord, Danny Goldberg, go get it. You can pre-order it now, or you can get it on today when uh, June sixth. Okay, and and by the <laughs> yeah, I, I think by the time people are hearing this, it wouldn't be a, a pre-order. <laughs> yeah, it won't be a pre-order. Yeah, I think I think they could just go, just go get it, get it, order yeah. it. Yeah. Get it any way you can. It'd mean yeah. a lot to me. I hope you like it. And thank you, Ragu, so much for your reading it and being so supportive. Uh, I can't tell you how much it means to me. Uh, and also, uh, everybody out there, Danny has a great podcast on the Be Here Now Network called Rock and Rolls, R-O-L-E-S. Uh, and Danny talks to all sorts of really fascinating, interesting, and wonderful people. And you can go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny and, uh, and certainly subscribe to his podcast. So this is the BeHereNowNetwork.com. You can go to and navigate all sorts of wonderful, uh, uh, different, uh, not just podcasts. We have wonderful articles and blogs from different people and some of the some teachers. Some great video. And some great video, yeah. We're, we're, we got it going there. I mean, you're speaking of Ginsburg before. There's a video you've got of Ramdas and Ginsburg having a conversation. Yeah, it's just fantastic. one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Yeah, that's on our sister network, Ramdas.org. You can go there and you can find it. Uh, so thanks, everybody. We'll look to see you next week on Mind Rolling.